This is Lloyd Minster's show. This is local that matters to you. Local people. Local events. Local news and sports. For Lloyd Minster and area, this is Live with Kurt Price from the new Lloyd Minster Nissan. Welcome to another edition of Patchwork. I'm Kurt Price along with Tracy Kay. This is the oil and gas podcast and vodcast where we focus on everything oil and gas we are biased towards oil and gas <laughs> we're very pro oil and gas we're very proud to be oil and gas and we've got another guy that is very proud to represent oil and gas particularly western canadian oil and gas on the show today a gentleman who uh, has uh, you know called this area home for a few years and now uh, lives down in estevan and that's Brian Zinchuk. And Brian Zinchuk has started up an online edition of PipelineOnline.ca to talk about oil and gas. We'll let him tell us about uh, his publication and what it's going to bring to this industry and uh, also who he's bringing with him into the industry as well. But, uh, Tracy, I know that you watched his uh, speech that he did in 2018, and you just thought, this guy is amazing. This guy has a passion Absolutely. for oil and gas that is matched and and quite frankly the only guy that i've seen that can match that is sitting right here with tracy <laughs> hey you know what uh if i don't tell you enough i absolutely love doing this show with you and patchwork let's talk oil and gas you're right we are super biased we have another super biased guy on that honestly could be part of our three amigos and call it the three amigos patchwork show um talk to and i should say listen to him on his uh one youtube uh presentation that you had sent me and man he is so bang on on what he's doing and what he wants to do out there to get this out from a different angle and uh we're excited to uh, have him on the show today kurt and uh just another great guest looking forward yeah, to it really excited to introduce you if you don't know brian zinchuk and uh, you're, you're going to meet him today and you're going to find out all about uh, uh brian but tracy i want to find out all about the oil prices uh we know it's through the roof we know it's climbing <laughs> uh where where is it at right now well, let me get my pen all right so oil and gas prices i mean i've been celebrating this you know, are we going to break $80? Because, you know, it seemed like you go 60, 70. But for whatever reason, people seem to get really excited after breaking 80. And uh, today, uh, the prices are $83.87 a barrel for WTI. Western Canadian Select, which is our version of our great oil here in Western Canada, $67.74 U.S. a barrel, which really is going to equivalent to almost $80 plus a barrel from that side. Gas, let's talk about natural gas, which I don't normally talk about on here, but it's it's going all over the world right now, and Europe's concerned about natural gas supply and all of these things that are going to be happening here. $5.17 right now per gigajoule. And so, you know, we don't often talk about that gas, natural gas price, Kurt, but uh, there's going to be some interesting stuff coming down the pipes here when uh, it starts to get a little colder. Canada rig count. We're up just a few, actually only one uh, as of the last time we talked. Uh, Canada rig count, 168. 
U.S. rig count, 543 rigs cruising down in the U.S. And the international rig count from last month to today now, 787 rigs internationally. So stuff is just a matter of time. We've got to find people that can go back to work on this rig and the rig counts are going to go way up, Kurt. So I wanted to ask you about that, Tracy, about, uh, you know, we're hearing an energy crisis and we're seeing our gas at the pumps is, uh, uh, you know, it's $1.39 uh, right now. So we always hear that's really good for Lloyd Minster. It may be hard on the pocketbook, but it means our economy is going to be humming and really picking up. Are we seeing that, Tracy? Well, let me talk to you from a little bit of my perspective as a, as a guy working in the oil industry still to this day. We're starting to see that move more and more. We're starting to see people open up more because when the price is better, they're going to do stuff that they normally didn't budget for before because the price is better. That could be low oil, a lot lower oil production wells. It can come back on because the market value uh, makes them viable to come back on again. But please, for our listening audience, please be encouraged. I want to speak to the retired uh, people out there that when the price of gas does go up, and I know it's, it might be quite sad for some people to see that go up, but it's exciting for the entire country when that happens because I've always said that, is that when the price of gas is up, that means the price of barrel per oil is usually up, which then drives the economy. So do we want 10 cents a liter uh, uh, gasoline and the oil price is $5 a barrel, or do we want $1.35 a liter and the oil price or the barrel of oil is $80? That's what's gonna drive economy. I know that's a tough word to say to some people, but for the most of our listening audience, that is cartwheels, that is, uh, you know, um, fireworks. That's all the stuff that we get excited about of saying, can we get back to doing some of this again? And that's what the exciting part. So to answer that question, I'm excited. The pumps are, high, are a little bit high, but the oil price is going to justify that. Um, if we're working good and we're doing that, we can easily afford it, which then allows us to be able to create that good economy out there. And I'm hoping everybody likes what I got to say about that. Well, and uh, we have a few other things to say because, you know, Alberta had uh, their referendum votes, Tracy, and that included uh, part of Lloyd Minster. I mean, you had texted me a couple of days before yeah. the referendum said, did you know that I can vote in the referendum? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So did you go out and vote, Trace? Did you have Absolutely. Time? I sure did. I took my part to do that because I've always been a commenter that says, if you're around the Tim Hortons coffee table and you're commenting about something that you had no part in, you should uh, take yourself and be absent from the conversation. So I went out and voted and I want you to elaborate on that more than me because I know that you've been talking about that referendum and a little bit more historical than I am. But what I do know from an oil man side of, some guys may, may decide where they, which side they wanna go on, but we always didn't like the fact that if we get called out to Saskatchewan, we gotta leave an hour earlier, but we gain it on the way back. And for some guys they go, that's great. But I've always just had this challenge about why are we changing our clocks twice a year when we just don't need to and just follow suit like everybody else, Kurt? Well, and, and so and no surprise that Lloyd Minster and unofficial, these are unofficial results, but it yeah. looks like 80 percent of yeah, Alberta, uh, Alberta residents yeah. Yeah, in Lloyd Minster said, you know what, let's just let's let's. Uh, 
let's adopt daylight savings time and yeah. make it year round. So not really that surprising considering where we are. The rest right. of Alberta though is like from what I've heard, you're either you know people were either fifty one percent or forty nine percent for it. Yeah. It's just hovering right around there. So who knows? Maybe Lloyd Minster will make up that difference. Well, well what will make what makes that final difference? Do they do they go to the to well, the, to the party not, and say if it's that close, we're not going to do it, or it, if yeah, it it's was not overwhelming, binding. would they? Yeah, it's, 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 it's not, not binding. No, 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 it's not like they have to adopt it. Right. And so, no, but they were probably looking at the survey and saying, OK, if it would have been 90 percent that we stay, we stay like everybody else. But I, I'm just curious to know what that vote really valued. Then was it just to see what the percentages were? And if it's so close, they're not going to change it. Or what are your thoughts? I'm my not thoughts the are they, guy. that if it's that close, they won't change it. My, my, my thoughts, thoughts are that too. it's that close, yeah. they won't change it. But who knows, maybe Lloyd Minster with its 80%, you know, or will it be factored into, you know, Lloyd Minster only saw like 2,100 people vote, right? Oh, my, I mean, yeah. you know, they take the but referendum. The but a lot of people didn't realize they had to do it. So, but yes, yeah. you, you think that 80% is high. 85% of people in Lloyd Minster say that the Alberta government should look <laughs> at equalization, which isn't that much of a surprise to us either, Tracy, uh, because let's face it, the federal government is not that popular out here and Quebec yeah. is not very popular out here. We hear a lot of people, they maybe don't understand completely what it is, but they understand enough to know they're losing money. Right? Isn't that right. the most important thing is 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 that you're, you're not having that money, that it's going somewhere else. So well, I, I know a lot of people will talk about yeah, but, you know, people in Alberta, they don't even understand equalization. They understand it enough to know they're losing money. Right. Everybody and knows when they're losing money. Absolutely. One of the comments back from that is, is if we decide that we're not going to do the equalization payments anymore, what does that do for the federal government? And I'm going, mm, I don't see any flicker on the dial. So the comment back that I get from my colleagues and people around me, <clears throat> excuse me, is if we keep our own money, are we better off to keep our own money and still be further ahead to subsidize the stuff that the government might threaten to cut us off on? We'll be billions ahead anyways, Kurt. Yeah. And let's face it. It's because of oil and gas that, that you know, absolutely that Alberta is a have province so That's let's right. take a break and we'll come back and introduce you to brian zinchuk so excited to introduce you to this gentleman and so excited about what he's doing for the industry so we'll be right back with brian zinchuk here on patchwork she's a personal finance expert and blogger so i want to share with you guys some of the biggest money mistakes we make because there's so much we can do to improve our financial lives Hi, I'm Carrie K. Taylor, and you're invited to join me November 1st for an exclusive members-only event with Synergy Credit Union. I'm going to share the strategies that will give you the clarity and confidence to build your financial dreams on your terms. It's going to be fun, so if you're not a member yet, join right now, and I'll see you soon. At Diamond 7 Meats, we work with local farm families to provide a high-quality product and a great selection for you. Try our mouth-watering Smokies pulled pork, roast beef, and more. Made pure and natural with no additives or fillers. We offer custom processing, and our experienced team works for you to provide a selection of sausage, burgers, and jerkies made to your specifications. Take your grilling to the next level with a Yoder Smoker. Complete the grilling experience with a Canadian-made, award-winning line of House of Q barbecue sauces. We're locally owned and operated, and we look forward to seeing you today. 
PWM Steel in Lloydminster is the key supplier and largest indoor inventory of steel between Edmonton and Saskatoon. Locally owned, PWM Steel offers a wide range of services from steel cutting and bending to custom sign and powder coating. PWM Steel uses aluminum products as well as new and recycled steel. Key supplier of steel products and services since 1982. Visit their website at pwmsteel.com. Welcome back to Patchwork. Once again, Tracy Kay and Kurt Price, and we are very uh, extremely excited to introduce you to our guest today, who is the owner. He's the owner and the editor of PipelineOnline.ca, Brian Zinchuk. So, Brian, thank you for being here. Thanks for taking some time to talk to us today about oil and gas, something that you're obviously very passionate about. I'm really excited to be on here. So, hey, Brian, good to see you this morning, my friend. Hello. So let, let's start with who Brian Zinchuk is and why he's so passionate about oil and gas. Brian, how did you get involved in oil and gas and that industry? What was your first job? What makes you passionate about oil and gas? Well, I spent a few years flunking out of mechanical engineering, so it's a good thing I never designed a bridge because it would fall down. Uh, <laughs> and after that, I needed work because it was that or starve. And my stepdad was a big inch pipeliner and he got me into uh, unionized pipeline. So my first job was actually staying in North Battleford, working on a trans gas line that ran from uh, North Battleford up to good soil. And I worked on a ditcher, which is the most godforsaken piece of equipment ever designed. And I used to pump <laughs> 10 tubes of grease a day by hand every day. I had arms you could flint steel off of back then. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. These days, I look like I'm eight months pregnant, but I mean, back then, I was pretty skinny. So, uh, By so the way, the show is not edited, ladies and gentlemen. The show is not edited. So, uh, <laughs> and what, what happened was I got into that as an oiler, which is basically an apprentice or a, a swamper position. And I did union pipeline for a number of years. I worked on trans gas, uh, tr uh, worked with uh, Trans Canada, which is now TC Energy on Enbridge, on the line that's two lines before this line three replacement. So that was back in about 97. Uh, I worked 99 and 2000 on uh, the Alliance pipeline from start to finish. So I worked from Moosebin, sorry, from Moose Jaw up to Dawson Creek, Grand Prairie, and uh, back down to Regina again. And then I broke out as an operator. So I started doing uh, running an excavator. I did some in the Lloyd Minster area, actually some up near Onion Lake. Uh, I worked at the Baytech sand retention pit for a year where I basically sat and I mixed uh, sand and tried to squeeze the slop oil out of the sand. And I, I, so I worked two days on, two days off. I had my own truck. I worked with Dwight's trenching out of uh, Battleford. And, uh, and when I wasn't doing pipeline work, I did newspaper work. So I wrote an opinion column for 28 years, believe it or not, for uh, Priestville Progress and a bunch of other papers. And I uh, worked in Rosetown for a little bit. And and when I got out of uh, uh, pipelining in 2003, I actually ended up as a senior reporter for the Battleford's News Optimist. So I chased fire trucks, cops and robbers. I had the fire pager and uh, I did that for five years. And then I was recruited to be the editor of Pipeline News. 
So I'm the only reporter you're likely to run into who actually worked for a living in the patch. He you know, froze his <laughs> nuts off at 30 below and melted them at 30 above. And <laughs> you know, it, 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 it really makes a difference. And I often mention that in my interviews because I am one of you. I am not some jerk from CBC who's never worked a day in their life. I know what it's like to be in the field. Yeah. Brian, give us a, I, I'm taking a few notes here. Big inch pipeliner. Tell us what the explanation of big inch pipeliner is. I'm assuming it's big pipe you're, you're welding together, right? Exactly. So basically anything bigger than 16 inches is considered big inch. And it's considered oh, wow. Main, okay. So it's considered a main line. The smallest project I worked on was that 20 inch line that was uh, going from uh, North Balfour to Good Soil. Actually, the other part of that was from Brett. Rosetown to Good North Battleford. I worked on 36 inch lines for Enbridge and for uh, Alliance. And I worked on a 42 inch line for Trans Canada, which was supposed to eventually end up being the Energy East line. And, uh, you know, interesting thing about that 2014, I attended a uh, open house about Energy East in Regina. And I we can talk about that another day. But uh, I got some keychains. This is my oh, wow. daily reminder. Says Energy East on there if we can see it or not. Yeah, can that my, way, Yeah, that pipeline. And I have the material in my uh, drawers. It says it was supposed to be in service in December of 2018. Oh, this my is goodness. my reminder of how we got screwed by the Liberal government on on Energy East. So did and they I just take all the excess pipe, Brian, and then uh, turn them all into keychains? <laughs> uh, no, this is uh, so they could actually go out and build it. But the uh, I mean, the idea was is that the uh, and we can talk about this at a later date. Trans Canada mainline is only transporting about half of its capacity. There's six or seven pipes in that line. Yeah. And so they took one of them and they converted it into the Keystone pipeline, the original oil hauling pipeline, which go, makes a right turn around Winnipeg and goes south into the States. And then they were going to, they had still this unused capacity because fracking brought in so much gas production in Pennsylvania and upstate New York that they were supplying gas for that region that used to come from Western Canada specifically from primarily from Alberta and a little bit from Saskatchewan. So since they have all this pipe capacity, they figured, well, let's convert the biggest one into an oil pipeline. We'll call it Energy East. So that pipe is existing and in the ground from Hardesty all the way to uh, just about Kingston, Ontario. Oh, my and goodness. That, and I worked on that back in around 97, putting that in the ground. And I, you know, I've got some pictures of that project and whatnot. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to talk about. And we can do a whole show about that. Well, I'd like to get I into bet. that. Uh, yeah, I'd like to, we'd like to get into that a little bit later on in some of our questions, Brian, because we've never had a guy on, Kurt, in our patchwork show that is this dialed in on the pipeline, which to be honest with you is even, is, is really more intriguing, I believe, to our audiences and some of the other topics we've had along the way. And we've had some great topics, but Pipeline, pipeline, pipeline. People talk about that a lot. But in saying that, besides your dad, did anybody else influence you along the way on what you were doing in the oil patch, Brian? Well, I grew up, I grew up on a farm north of the Yorkton, a place called Hyas. And my parents split when I was 10. So uh, my dad still farmed. I grew up in Yorkton. Mom remarried. And my stepdad was the pipeliner. Uh, I had a cousin who also uh, was a pipeliner as well. Actually, several cousins uh, who spent most of their career doing that. One of the things about big inch pipeline in particular is you don't, it's not like, uh, for instance, in Lloydminster where you can go out and build a, uh, 
align and come home and sleep with your wife every night because guess what? Big inch pipelines back then, they would build four kilometers of pipe per day. Every day, that whole project, you know, 400 guys on a spread, we'd be moving four kilometers every day, what they call chainage. And uh, the, the, what that means is that every six weeks, you're picking up camp and moving to another town. You live in your camper. And that's a good way to get divorced. So three weeks after my wedding, I was on the road board crew on the Alliance Pipeline. And out of 12 guys on my bus, I was the only one married one, once. Oh, my goodness. So uh, that kind of opened my eyes like, well, you know, I kind of like her. Maybe I want to stay with her for a while. Yeah. And uh, it's been uh, something like 21, 22 years now. So, Were the guys uh, all handing out lawyer cards on the bus that day? or? <laughs> well, you know, this, this is kind of one of my opening jokes. Because as a reporter, you need a, you know, something to break the ice. And I mean, one of you know, most of them were on their second or third. One was on his fourth. At which point, oh, you walk into goodness. a bar, you find a woman you don't like, and you give her your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not so good. Not so good. Wow. Yeah, but good I mean, for I, you. At, at, at that point, I was an apprentice. Like I was an oiler, so I was teamed with an uh, with an, an operator who was extremely skilled. He was one of the best ones in the whole job. So he was one of the first ones brought on. We were like the second last one laid off. The last one was a foreman's son sort of thing. And uh, so I got a chance to work with almost every crew on the pipeline. And there's about 11 of them, except for the main gang, because you don't have an excavator, a main gang. But I worked with ditch, right of way, uh, final cleanup, cleanup, uh, backfill, tie-ins, the whole nine yards. So I got to see it, the wide gamut of big inch pipeline construction. And it is it's spectacular when we could do it, but these days you can hardly build anything. I mean, the trans mountain pipeline is supposed to be completed next year. Okay. I know someone who's working out there and we'll be lucky if it's done in 2025 or 2026. You're kidding. Remember those, those four kilometers of chainage we used to get on the prairies a day. Well, they got 12 kilometers in six months on that one part of the pipe. Okay. Do you want to expand on that and tell like, like, kind of tell us why that is brian from what i understand is that the the federal government is slow walking this project more than you can possibly imagine every single excuse they can have to slow it down they are and that's coming from the owner which is trans mountain which is the federal government so for example earlier this year some hummingbirds flew across the right away and they shut down all construction because there's we're disturbing hummingbird environment as if in the you know, British Columbia, which is bigger than most European nations, doesn't have any habitat for hunting, hummingbirds except the 30 meters wide runway. You know, and that, that's just one example. And I mean, it is taking forever. This it was supposed to be a $7 billion pipeline. If it comes in anything less than $20 billion, I'd be shocked. Hey, Brian, I so, want to I, I ask you a, a little bit about that, too, because uh, in your speech, you told a story about working around Lloydminster, too where the pipeline had to be diverted. Can you tell us that story? Well, maybe uh, just so people understand what you're talking about there. In 2018, I did a, uh, I was a keynote speaker for the Redverse Oil Showcase, which is a mini oil show, kind of like what Bonneville does, except probably one quarter the size. And mm -hmm. uh, that was the last one they had before COVID hit. Uh, and uh, it's, if you look it up, it's called, uh, I didn't see their horses. You look up my name, yeah. and check on YouTube. And yeah. Okay, great, great, great talk, Brian. Super good job. And uh, I, I talked about in there, I gave an example of uh, when I was covering 
Pipeline News in Lloydminster, where I spent a day of a, a local environment, uh, environmentalist, sorry, and it was out in a, the Mattu Sandhill, southeast, southeast of Lloydminster. It's about a half hour, 40 minutes, something yep. like that. We know where that is, and yeah. I never had actually been to that area, even though I lived in that area. I'd never seen the sandhills before. And she found this little fern about that tall. And she pointed out, said, see this little fern? Because of this fern, we are going to move this right of way. And that's, that wasn't for a big pipeline. This was just for a local pipeline like you have there all over the place. We got to move this right of way over at a cost of tens of thousands of dollars because I found this one fern. And that is the responsibility that the Canadian oil patch has been doing for years. I mean, that was... That was summer of 2008. You know, we have been doing this sort of thing, being responsible for, you know, forever. And do we get credit for that? I mean, does the oil company get credit for that? Do the contractors get credit for that? No, we're we're always seen as evil, as the devil. And that was a large part of that speech. So nobody yeah, knows. Like, nobody knows that, right? Nobody like nobody knows that. And and they no, don't want to hear it from you because you're so pro oil and gas. They don't want to hear it from you, right? And somebody could have walked by and stepped on that fern, and the thing would have been over. <laughs> well, know, and the other like, thing, yeah, you know, I'll give you an, a perfect example. So remember, I said that I was working on right after my wedding. Well, I was on that road board crew, and we were, and the year before that, we were building pipelines in June and July. When can you get the most done? In, it's in the summertime in June, July, August, get as much built as possible. It's warm. It's not nothing slippery. It's generally longer dry. days. Yeah. Longer days. You can really get a lot done. Well, the National Energy Board, in its wisdom, said a few years after that, uh, prior to 2008, I'm not sure what year it was, they said that thou shalt not build pipelines before the last bird has left its nest. So what that means is that you cannot build a National Energy Board approved pipeline anywhere in Canada in the summer months from spring from from breakup until August 15th. Because if a little bird, you know, a goose or a duck or whatever, built a nest on that right of way, you can't disturb it. So we don't build pipelines for basically a third of a year in the most productive part of a year. And if you watch almost every major project from Alberta Clipper to line three replacement, to everything else, they all start on August 15th because we threw away the entire summer because National Energy Board, in its wisdom, says, well, a bird could have planted a, or made a nest. Now, that does not stop the farmer from running his air seeder or his harrows or a sprayer or anything else across that exact same right-of-way. That doesn't stop the uh, forestry people from doing it, but we can't build pipelines during that summer ever on any B pipeline because of this rule. Brian, we always thought, I think Kurt and I thought, and I've been doing this for a long time in the industry, I thought you were 365, like seven days a week, 365, like that there was no, oh man, you can just imagine then, Kurt, some of these projects that are going to take as long as you are, you're shedding some light on the pipeline that our audiences need to hear, that's for sure. Well, and you know, and it's, that's all of the environmental arguments, stuff like that. And another example is that uh so back in 98 i think it was when i was working on uh, it was called the terrace b expansion it was basically an addition of another 36 inch pipeline to the enbridge main line and i worked on that from bethune through uh, moose jaw regina all the way to the manitoba border and then i ended up going back and doing it for another crew coming back so the first time around i was with a, a real surly operator who uh he was the most miserable sob i've ever worked with or anyone ever worked with 
He gave him a brand new truck, brand new excavator, tore the plastic off the seat, and that never, ever happens. And he still bitched about it. Anyhow, uh, they, they uh, told me to work with him, and my mom said, whatever you do, keep your mouth shut and don't get fired because you need this job. And uh, we dug every swamp from Regina to the Manitoba border. And every slough, every wetland, uh, they would pump out the water to get it low enough so we could dig it. We had sometimes water up to the top of our tracks, and they'd throw the spill onto the side and make a ramp out of it so that they could drive the trucks and the excavators and the bulldozers, side booms. And that's what they built the ramp on. <clears throat> so, and we did that for hundreds of kilometers. If you drive that right of way now, as I have, you cannot tell the difference between what we dug like that, open cut, and what has been done since. Okay, it's just indistinguishable from, from the terrain. But when... Uh, not Alberta Clipper, but when Line 3 replacement came along, they bored every slough around. Now, boring for a six-inch pipeline is not a big deal. You get an HDD rig, you, go, you do some directional drilling, no problem. When you're boring 36-inch pipe, you, you need massive equipment. I mean, some of the biggest iron you've seen, some of the biggest side booms you've seen, uh, if you're doing a slip bore across a... Uh, uh, a road, that's one thing, but something longer, you need to do a track bore. You have to dig this giant hole. You have to put this great big track thing in the bottom and push it through. Uh, you sometimes see these when they do culverts. But, I mean, this is yeah. a lot bigger scale. And, I mean, some of these sloughs were a couple hundred meters. So the expense for that was stupendous. Uh, but that's what they do now because the NEB says that's what you have to do. So I was present at the uh, Bakken expansion pipeline, which was, I think it was a 16-inch line that went through southeast Saskatchewan. Uh, entered Canada near uh, Northgate, went past Alameda, came up past Redvers, went to uh, the uh, Enbridge Sherma Cromer. And they had hundreds of bores on that site, or on that job. I mean, I walked across a, it wasn't even a slough, okay? It was just a tiny, uh, you wouldn't even get your boots wet. And instead of actually digging it, uh, as you normally would do, you just you know take move topsoil over, dig the whole trench or dig the trench, put the pipe in, cover it up. No, they bored that, and they bored everything at tremendous expense. So the other thing about all this is that compared to like the late '90s when you get four kilometers of chainage a day on average for a big job, if they're getting three now, they're doing backflips. So I mean, why do these things cost so much? And why are we as taxpayers now, especially for tra the Trans Mountain uh, expansion? Well, now you know. Political bureaucracy is what it looks like it is, Brian. It, it is. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's basically everything that can possibly be done to make life difficult without any common sense. That is the way it's done now. And that's, wow. that's, that's mainly the energy board, Brian? Uh, well, the, any, I mean, that's... Principally, the energy board, that's so anything across a, an interprovincial border uh, is NEB, and it's, it now has a new name. It's called Canada Energy Regulator because Trudeau said, well, the NEB has no uh, legitimacy. Excuse me. And uh, whatever, it's, you know, same crap, different pile, okay? It's not so bad for, in, for intra-provincial stuff. So, I mean, if you're building a flow line from, uh, you know, St. Wahlberg down to uh, Lloydminster, you don't have excuse me, you don't have the same rules, but there are similar rules. Like we can build intra-provincial pipelines in the summertime. You can't do intra-provincial or inter-provincials. Right. Hmm. So, 
And uh, I mean, the regulatory is, let's just say this, I have run into dozens, maybe hundreds of environmentalists in the last 13 years, and not one of them worked for for the Sierra Club, they all worked for oil companies. So Hmm. that's a bit about my background. So, I mean, you know, I've been out there, been in the field, I've seen all this stuff. So when I'm reporting on it, I, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I don't, yeah. I'm not some guy from, you know, some of the other media who show up like, well, what's a pipeline for? Oh. You're probably the most, by far, the most educated guy on pipelines we've had on our show. Hey, Kurt. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, we, we haven't had I'm, anybody of this knowledge. I'm curious, awesome. Brian, like what, what takes you to pipeline news? Like you had said, you know, and, and I don't know if it's even spe- particularly pipeline news that I want to talk about. What I'm trying to get at is what brings you to focus on oil and gas makes you the editor of uh, pipelineonline.ca instead of being out there working uh, in the industry right now. How do you take that next step? What happened to lead you there? Well, okay. So what happened was in 2008, remember when oil was, marching up to $147 a barrel. Uh, I was actually offered uh, editor positions at four different papers in British Columbia. And I turned them down because, you know, before they had the show Highway Through Hell, uh, my aunt, I decided to go for a ride with her husband one day and he was a trucker and they fell off the side of a mountain and she died. And my ambition to move to British Columbia was absolutely zero. So anyhow, I I was uh, talking to the people within the company uh, which owns quarter of papers in Saskatchewan and quarter of papers Western Canada. And uh, they had an opportunity for uh, what is happening here. So there used to be a publication in Lloyd Minster that was owned by Sharon Moss called Pipeline News. Yes, and very familiar was, with it. And there was a similar publication in, uh, in Estadan called Pipeline. So in 2007, Glacier Media bought Pipeline News out of Lloyd Minster. And then they already had Pipeline uh, from Estadan forever. And they merged them into a provincial newspaper. So uh, I was basically employee number one. And towards the end, I was the last employee. So we initially had three reporters at first, but that rapidly uh, diminished to two. Uh, Just a second. Uh, I was living in North Battleford at the time. So I'd been with the the Battleford's News Optimist. And, uh, you know, they were looking to kind of move me up in the company. And I was the only reporter who had any oil patch experience that they knew of and that I know of either for that matter. So living in North Battleford for the first six months, I covered the Lloyd Minster region. And that's really important talking to you guys here is because I went to the monthly meetings, uh, lunch and learns for SPE. And I learned what a wormhole is yep. and uh, you know how that's important. And well, you probably would have met me there a few times and Brian along the way. I, I'm pretty sure we have met, you know, yeah. but it, I mean, that was quite a while ago. And, uh, Anyhow, so I, I got a chance to learn, you know, oh, the progressing cra- cavity pump Pumps, yeah. uh, came forward around 1982 is what revolutionized the Lloyd Minster Oil Show, allowed you to go, or oh, sorry, Lloyd Minster Oil Patch, which allowed you to go from 2% recovery to, you know, 5 or 6% recovery. And, you know, and, and I worked, like you said, at the sand retention pit for Baytex, so I saw some of that in. And I've been to a good number of those shops in Lloyd Minster before I moved to Estevan. So Svan is light oil country, and there's a there's a big difference in the production stuff. You know, uh, uh, Lloyd Minster was mostly shallow wells. Here it's all deep wells and deep, long horizontals and much longer multi-leg ones now. 
Mm -hmm. uh, since then, Lloyd Minster has revolutionized the SAG-D. I haven't had a chance to do much of that yet, but that is on my agenda. Uh, and we can talk about that again, maybe in a future thing. But yeah, so I have a grounding in the Lloyd Minster region. And I was there, you know, three times a week for six months before I moved to Estevan. So I moved here, uh, bought a house that cost almost three times the same uh, house I had in North Battleford for basically the same house. And uh, there was only four houses on the market at the time that were, didn't need either a bulldozer or a lottery ticket. And I'm <laughs> doing pipeline news. So some people think pipeline news, oh, it's all just about pipelines. Well, no, the New York Times is not a publication about watches. You know, so it's, that was basically the, we called it the Petroleum Monthly Newspaper. And it was a newspaper. We printed once a month. And uh, <clears throat> we had pretty wide distribution in, oil, in all the oil patch regions of Saskatchewan. So Kindersley, Lloydminster, Swift Current, Estevan, Weyburn, Carlisle, Carnduff. So I did that for 12 years. And the reality is the newspaper industry is dying. Okay? And I knew this was coming. So it's kind of like the part of a, the movie of a Titanic where the ship's about like this. And the preacher's giving the last rites to the people as Jack and uh, Rose are climbing <laughs> on the back. That, that's what the newspaper industry has been in the past few years. And soon it's, it's going to go, that'll be it. So I, I knew this was coming. And when COVID hit uh, and oil went down to zero, people going broke, don't buy ads. So they stopped printing pipeline news. And it, last one was March in 2020. And I got laid off in April. Now it was a temporary layoff, but uh, yeah, I was done. And Depending on how you look at it, I had spent 17 years with the company from North Battleford and Pipeline News. And then I actually started working for that company before it even existed. I delivered papers for the Yorkton Enterprise when I was 12. And Yorkton this week when I was my teens and I started doing freelance stuff. So I've been with them for a very long time. Yeah. It's, it's literally ink in my blood. So what am I going to do? And I, I saw this coming. So I knew that I was at some point I was going to launch my own site. And just before I get into that, uh, you know, with Pipeline News, there was a couple of things that uh, the initial publisher, Brant Kersey, came up with that was, you know, brilliant. One of which was we did a focus every month. And, and actually, we did initially we did two. We, did, we focused on a town and we focused on a topic. So I might have done a story about Titus at some point, uh, you know, talking about tools and stuff like that. I went, that also meant I went to almost every town in the patch. So I would, I was in uh, St. Wahlberg and did a focus on that. I was in Turtleford. I was in Edom. I was in Vaughan, uh, you know, Maidstone. Uh, there's not much in Lone Rock, so, but I did do a little bit there. Yeah. You know, and obviously Lloyd Minster is always stuff, right? Uh, so, and we, and I had a reporter there who's still working in the industry in Lloyd Minster. Uh, his name is Jeff Lee. And mm -hmm. he, he worked for us all the time. And, you know, it was, it was great. I mean, Jeff's older than I am and, we would put together a hundred page newspaper on the basis of uh, a few emails and a couple phone calls a month. You know, my philosophy was, you know, you know what you're doing, just go do it. And, yeah. And that's how I worked as well. So, you know, most of my stuff was written between 10 and two at night, but cause I'm a night owl, but I got it done. But really pipeline news was my exploration of the oil patch. It was okay. We're going to do a focus on downhole tools, for instance. You know, so I would track down anywhere from a half dozen to 15 companies working in downhole tools. And then the next month I would do uh, something along the lines of service rigs. So I would do maybe three service rigs in, in Estevan and two in Lloydminster and whatnot. Or my reporter in Lloydminster would do the, the Lloydminster ones and 
I would do the ones down here. And then the next month I do drilling, for instance, or, you know, flow line construction or, you know, uh, artificial lift talking about, you know, PC pumps or whatever. Mm-hmm. And really, I think over 13 years, we covered almost every single area you can possibly imagine in the oil patch. And after a while you have to start recycling them because there's only so much you can do. So, right. uh, you know, we do trucking every three years, we do safety <clears> every <throat> years. And I would, what I would do is I'd say, okay, Hey, I'm, I'm going to do uh, all my safety tickets here. I'm going to write a story about the place I'm doing my safety tickets. Can I get them for free? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, it, but you I ever I know to, when you were going to need to use your H2S or first aid or BOP blowout prevention course, uh, Brian, is that what I didn't, saying? I didn't take the BOP one. I never knew no, you that. didn't, but all the other ones. So yeah, I have all my tickets. I have my FRs. I have my hard hat. It's got, you know, I was looking at my hard hat the other day and most of the stickers are companies that don't even exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, I mean, I, and my formula is as much as possible, get out in the field. Okay. I did not want to sit and talk to people in office. I would, you know, get me out there, you know, seven in the morning, whatever. Let's get some nice pictures, get some, uh, you know, talk about what's happening out there. And one of the things I found out early on, and I found this out in Lloyd Mintz in particular, there was a, uh, uh, a machining company on the north end of Lloyd at the time. And it was a family run business. I can't remember the name. I'm sure you know who they are, Kelly. But uh, uh, anyhow, it, Oh, sorry, Tracy. I mean, <clears throat> I'm bad off names. Uh, family-owned business, Triland Machine. I believe that is, yeah. And so, what it was, this is about 2008 at the time, and there was uh, a sister and a couple brothers. That's and, it, Triland Machine. And she had got 100 percent on all of her machining exams. She basically was the perfect student in uh, her thing, and her brothers answered to her. And the younger one at the time, this is 13 years old, he swept the floor and the other brother, you know, he did whatever. Yeah. She ran the show. And, you know, what really struck me about that story was that I realized if you weren't Husky, you were probably a family business. <laughs> so it, it was very much the case, you know, not just there, but down here as well. You know, the sketch and well patch is characterized by an enormous number of family businesses like that, as opposed to, you know, the big companies like Schlumberger or whatever. I mean, Schlumberger's presence in Saskatchewan was next to non-existent. They had an office in Estevan here where they had one guy working in a shop that was 10,000 square feet. And I went to university with him. He, he passed, I didn't. So he got to be an engineer and I got to interview him. And, but anyhow, my point is, is that, so I got, you know, and when I would sit down with people, it, it, I didn't sit down for 10 minutes. Oh, what did you do? Okay, I'm out the door. You know, and some reporters are like that. I would, my typical interview is an hour to an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. You know, I tell them a little about me and I learned about them and we get to know each other and built a relationship. And a few years later, I'd come back and say, Hey, so what's changed? What's new? Oh, we bought these trucks or we bought this or whatever. And, you know, or Joe was retiring and, uh, you know, his son, John is taking over. And, and I, I really tried to knock on as many doors as possible. So I, I, I tell my, my kids, you know, my daughter's uh, 17. She's gonna, likely going to be an automotive mechanic here. She's got a 98 in mechanics. So if anyone wants an apprentice next year, give me a call. <laughs> All right. You know, and I, I tell my kids, if, if, if you love what you're doing, you're never going to work a day in your life. And I absolutely loved what I was doing. Yeah. But the reality is that the newspaper industry was and is dying. And, uh, you know, they eventually they let me go because they had to. They had, what do you do? I mean, COVID hit and everything collapsed. So when that hit, I was, I posted on Monday, 
uh, night at nine o'clock on Facebook that I'd been laid off. And by Tuesday, the next morning, I got an email from the provincial government asking me to do some consulting for them. So they asked me to, it was a short-term contract. They said, we don't know what's going on out there of COVID. So call everyone you know and ask them, well, how are you doing and what can we do to help? So I built a list of about 450 companies, which I figured made up about 90% of the activity in Saskatchewan oil patch. And I called one third of them, like about 151, 152. Oh my and only, goodness. And only two didn't take my call. So, I, I, I know you don't want to go into too much about what they told you, but Brian, give us a little, little sample of when it, when it was there, how bad was it? Well, this was literally the weeks around, you know, just a couple of weeks after oil went into negative. I mean, and everyone was shutting down and laying people off and they didn't know what, they didn't know if they could keep their doors open. It was brutal. I mean, I, I can't get into specifics because I'm not, not allowed to. Brian, and, and while it, you're saying that, how I, I've, Kurt and I've talked about this many times on the show. How do you get a great commodity like oil to, and then we can elaborate on that later. It doesn't matter. Oil will never be worth zero. It's always going to be worth something. That's just a computer fragment uh, fraction mistake or what, you know, like oil's well, always going to be worth something. I actually, one of my last columns I did before I was laid off, I did a video column on, you can still find it on my YouTube channel. I talked about how uh, you could buy a barrel of oil for less than a Big Mac meal. Yeah, like seriously. Right. So yeah. it was ridiculous. But our, how that happened and how it could, these things continue to happen is that oil is one of the most leveraged commodities, if not the most leveraged commodity on the planet. And the futures contract, and I don't remember what the exact number is. You ask Dave Yeager and he'll tell you this. He knows it yeah. exactly. It is like not one or two times. Like if, if you took the total volume of oil on the re, physical oil in the market and the entire planet, the amount of that's actually traded is many times like 10 or a hundred times the actual amount of oil that exists. I, I don't remember what the exact number is, but because of those trading futures and derivatives and this and that, you know, that allows for enormous market fluctuations. And, and this is something to remember out of all the time I've spent with this. There's one truth that I learned the difference between a hundred dollar oil uh, WTI barrel and $40 oil is the difference of 2 million barrels of production based on a global market of 100 million barrels. So in 2008, we were producing around 92, or 92 million barrels a day. In 2019, just before oil crashed with uh, COVID, the world market was about 100 million barrels a day. So 2 million barrels is just a 2% difference. So if the Saudis opened up the taps as they did on November 27th, 2014, added 2 million barrels to the... the uh, uh, what do you call it, to the market? The market. Yeah. Then what happened is oil went from $110 a barrel <laughs> all the way down to $26 a barrel. And that was, I think it was $26.26 $20, $26 on, I think it was February of 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, now that there, things have tightened up, and there's a, a shortage of, of uh, that. And the, United, and the United States grew by 8 million barrels a day in production. 8 million barrels? That's double what Canada produces. But the, uh, the American financial market said, well, you know, we, uh, we don't really like fracking down in the, uh, Texas anymore. We're not going to give you any more money to do it. 
And part of that was a shell game that a lot of oil companies, including Canada, including Saskatchewan, did. They would spend 100% of their cash flow for new drilling. And they never actually paid dividends to anyone. And no one ever made a profit. The way you made your money is you, you bought it when the stock was $10 and sold it when it was $11. Right. And it was based on the fact that you know, this company X kept drilling a huge amount of oil uh, or huge amount of wells, and then they kept increasing their oil production. Uh, but the, in recent years, the markets basically found religion and said, no, 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 no. You can't spend 100% of your cash flow. I mean, can you imagine, you know, Titus Tools, okay? If you spent every single cent you made on manufacturing, but you never spent anything on paying yourself or paying, uh, you know, things for the future, uh, you know, paying for your overhead, just spent it on manufacturing. How could you stay in business? You can't. You wouldn't. You can't. But that is how the 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 uh, companies that were doing the, all the shale oil on the sites. That's how some p- companies were doing in Saskatchewan as well. They were spending 100 percent of their cash flow on new drilling, and they weren't spending, you know putting money in people's pockets. So that's one of the things that's happening right now is that we have oil that's 80 dollars a barrel. Well, why the hell aren't all the oil drilling rigs going out the door? Well, it's because the companies have found religion that because their investors have said, give us profits, show us dividends, show me the money. So that's something that, again, we can talk at greater length in the future. And it's just going to come down to a matter of time, Brian, before they can start seeing those dividends come back again. And people, you know, the world's got to self-adjust to that because uh, with this price now, this is when we're going to start moving and seeing that again. And hopefully that cash flow comes back and it starts to reward some of the investors just commenting back on that Quebec teachers fund that, you know, not segueing into anything, but that said by 2022 or 2023, they're going to be out of oil and gas in Canada, the second largest pension fund in Canada. Well, I, I just truly continue to believe that these people are going to come and they're going to regret leaving and, and seeing what this is going to give them back in the, on the long haul again. Well, they're going to lose a lot of potential money. That's for sure. I mean, yeah. I'm not a financial guru. That's you got to talk to Jaeger about that. Okay. Yeah, uh, my expertise is really talking to the people on the ground of dirt under the fingernails. Uh, you know, so I, I leave the financial stuff. I leave all that, uh, you know, financial reporting to the people in Calgary and the Calgary media. So getting up, so pipeline news, like I said, basically wrapped up and, and uh, they brought me back. Glacier brought me back to cover uh, provincial politics for something called the local journalism initiative. And it was a, a federally funded program. I didn't really like the whole idea of that, but I needed to feed my kids. This just a few and, months ago, right? Just a few uh, months ago. So that was uh, in July of last year. Okay. And I did that until April of this year. And mm-hmm. so I covered the provincial legislature and which was basically 99% COVID for that entire year uh, until April when I resigned. So, and I resigned to form my new outfit, which is pipeline online. And uh, basically it's what I was doing before, except that, uh, it's instead of being a newspaper with a website, it is now a website. And it also means I can do things exactly like what we're doing right now. I mean, podcasts are on my very high, my agenda. I hope to do one in November for my first one. I can do video stories. I can have video elements to my stories. Uh, all my advertising is videos. It's not banner ads or static stuff. It's all stuff that's very eye catching and everything on there right now is stuff that I've shot. So it's, <clears throat> you know, it, some of my taglines are, this is Saskatchewan's energy news. 
That's number one. And number two, it's about Saskatchewan for Saskatchewan. Now, I will cover the Lloydminster region because most vets focus on the Saskatchewan side anyhow. You know, so I, I, I'll be talking to people who are based in Kitscotty, for instance, or on the west side of Lloyd. I mean, I'm not. We always get we always get exempt, Brian. We always get thrown in with Saskatchewan. We're OK with that. You know, and we do fall under Saskatchewan bylaws and all the restrictions and rulings in that anyways. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Lloydminster and um, I, you can call me either side of the border. I'm happy with it. So <laughs> well, and, and, and from the previous paper and for my and going forward, my consideration has always been. From my perspective, Lloydminster is Saskatchewan, all of it, and all the people around it, you know, and whether you want to talk about being Alberta or whatever, I don't care. For my purposes, you're part of the Saskatchewan oil patch. Don't say that and, too loud, though, because we don't want to start paying any PST. <laughs> yeah. Well, you might have to change your time back to our time here, too. But that's right. Yeah, I will. But op- operationally, that's that's the way I'm treating it. I'm also covering the southwest corner of, Lloyd, of uh, Manitoba, uh, because no one else shows him love, and I'm the only person who has shown him any love for the last 13 years. In yeah. fact, uh, their current premier right now is uh, a friend of one of my best friends, and I sent him a text on Facebook the other day saying, I, I know you're only premier for a short time, but by the way, you have an oil patch. Your previous premier didn't know that. Yeah, and Manitoba has always been kind of left out in the out in the cold on their own. And, you know, you, when you say Verdon, most people go, well, where, where's that? You know, like they do have they do have a, a, a legit place in in the oil industry, and uh, it it really and, and for you doing that, it 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 totally ties into Southern Saskatchewan because most of the services to for, to Verdon are coming from Southern Saskatchewan, anyways, Brian. Exactly, and you know, and, and, be, and companies from Verdon work some of them work into uh, Saskatchewan, but primarily it's you know service from Southeast Saskatchewan. It's really part and parcel of this. So I've yeah. visited over the years almost every oil patch business in Southwest Manitoba. Uh, I make a point of doing it in the summertime because my family has a cabin about two hours northeast of Verdon, uh, near Clear Lake. So uh, I, you know, I go out to the cabin. I go to stories in Verdon on the way there and the way back. Absolutely. Uh, but anyhow, so yeah, the things that you'll be seeing with this new website is, you know, really a focus about Saskatchewan, but not just oil and gas. In this past year, I do commercial photography and commercial video work, which you'll see with this uh, website. You know, you'll see the, the fruits of that, especially you know, building up my skills in the video work. And uh, I've been out to the first, first few wells for Royal Helium. I've been out to Deep Earth Geothermal. I've done all the photog- almost all the photography for them since their first well, and they're on I think, their sixth well. I've been working on that project for several years. Uh, I was out to the very first lithium well drilled in Saskatchewan two weeks ago, and I was out there actually yesterday. Uh, you know, so there's a lot that's going on. It's not just oil and gas, and it uses the exact same people, the exact same rigs to produce this. I mean, for example, yeah, uh, this lithium well, okay, it is literally across the road from a pump jack. Uh, it is using, it used Panther drilling out of Weyburn. Uh, independent well servicing out of Estefan for the service rig. Uh, there was a bunch of uh, viral tanks that were manufactured up in the Lloydminster area uh, that were on the site. Uh, there was, you know, this is all oil and gas work. The only difference is they're purposely drilling for water that has lithium in it. Uh, the geothermal project, exact same thing. All local suppliers, all, you know, doing this stuff, and yet they're drilling for hot water to produce electricity from it eventually. Uh, helium, the same thing. So is that part of the oil patch? I think so. I think it is too. 
I think it's just all pertaining back to that somewhere down the line. I keep saying this line uh, and will forever. Uh, all paths lead back to fossil fuels. Doesn't matter what you're in. Alex Epstein used to say, okay, you've got the fossil fuels machine. What do you want to make? Here's the fossil fuels machine right here. What do you want to put into it? Okay, oh, I... let's put, let's put, whoops, let's put, let's put this into the fossil fuel machine right here and out comes the other side, the finished product. And it's, it's so true. I mean, it, all, all of it's going to be pertaining somewhere to fossil fuels down the oh, line. I, I could go on for hours for that stuff. And these are some of the things editorially I will be doing. So, you know, the, the, uh, the other things I'll be covering is power generation because it is all linked to fossil fuels. If you're not burning coal, you're burning natural gas because I've been to wind turbine farms. Uh, first time I ever saw a wind turbine was at St. Leon, Manitoba, which is uh, east of Brandon. And it was uh, January 2nd. It was a beautiful day. It was like minus two degrees. And I pulled out my camera. I'm like, wow, isn't this gorgeous? Look at all those shiny white windmills. And I took my camera and I put it against it. And I took every single angle you can think of. And then I realized there's 23 windmills here and two are turning. How much power is getting to the grid from this entire farm, right? Oh, it's January. We need power. And yet none of the windmills are turning. You know, uh, going out to take pictures of that and video of that uh, helium project. I drive through this brand new enormous wind turbine farm that's being built near Cinnaboya. Well, sometimes, guess what? They're not turning. So, you know, the, I'll be talking a lot about that stuff. I mean, I'll be doing... Uh, you know, video columns, kind of the same way that uh, Rick Mercer used to do those rants. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Rick Mercer rants. Yeah. So I've I've got a, a number of them planned already. I mean, I'm going to be talking about you know about wind turbines and about electrical generation and and you know just a, a very short preview of one of them, the uh, new Ford F-150 uh, Lightning. Mm -hmm. If you get the extended range battery, and if anyone who drives a truck is going to get the maximum capacity because of no one drives a truck to have a small truck. Okay. They, they want, if you have a truck, you want the most you can get out of it. So everyone's going to get the extended range battery. Well, to charge that thing overnight and not have it to take 14 to 16 hours, you have to get an 80 amp charger. Now, a typical house in Canada only has a hundred amp service and that charger needs a hundred amp breaker. So that's basically like running your entire house with your daughter and your, uh, running her hair dryer on every circuit in the house while you're running the, the heater, while you're running the baseboard heater, while you're running the microwave and the oven and the dryer at the same time. So to do that, it means you would have to basically add an, an additional 100 amp service to your house. So if you have 100 amp service right now, you have to upgrade to 200 amp. That's for one truck. My driveway has my wife's F-150. I have an Expedition. My daughter has a, a diesel sucking uh dodge one ton so how do you charge three of them do we put 300 amp service into our house in addition to the 100 amps we already have yeah you know and where's also going to come from ryan also remember too that your concrete driveway is going to have to have some extra support with it and all the roads you drive on because they're going to be 60 percent heavier than the average gasoline truck as well oh i mean it, it just it, it goes on and on and you know i did a back of a table napkin uh calculation about how much energy come is uh, the equivalent of the 135,000 barrels that comes out of the Regina refinery per day. Take a guess. Uh, I, my numbers, I haven't solidified this, so I could be off a little bit, but not enormously. It's the equivalent of 8,100 megawatts. 
Now, if you turn on every power generator it's has power is connected to, on a cold save a year, they put out 4,500 megawatts. Yeah. So if we are to use the energy equivalent of that one small refinery, it's not a big refinery, we would have to not double the size of SAS power, but triple it. Yeah. And, you know, there's some arguments, oh, well, but electrical is more efficient and blah, blah, blah. And maybe there is. Okay. And I've got to work out some of this, these numbers. So We've done so many here. shows on that, Brian, to, to just the carbon footprint that takes uh, twice as much carbon footprint from electric vehicle to a gas vehicle. The other part is, is Kurt and I have talked about this and chuckled on the show many times. Uh, can you imagine that the lights, you know, that song when the lights went out in Georgia, that would go across the entire Canadian country of going when the lights went out in Canada, because at eight o'clock, the, the grid shuts down on any anything you're doing, microwaving or cooking a turkey in the oven or anything so that we can charge all the electric vehicles because we have two or three in our driveway. It's just there's no possibility there's no feasibility there's no sustainability on that in my opinion well, well you start talking about nuclear and that's almost as bad of a swear word as it is as oil and gas is for some greenies Let's put it yeah. that and that's another topic that i will be writing about extensively i mean i wrote more about carbon capture than everyone else combined when the carbon capture plant opened in estevan i wrote twenty thousand words on that other people wrote seven paragraphs. I wrote 20,000 words. Uh, yeah, and that's yeah. the type of coverage I do. And I mean, you know, I do really in-depth stuff and nuclear is going to be one of them. So I will end up being the guy writing the most about nuclear because if they go build it in Saskatchewan, I guarantee it's going to be within 10 miles of my house right here in Estevan. But you're talking about three units of 300 megawatts each, which would basically replace Boundary Dam. Okay. Yeah. To replace exactly. that 8,100 megawatts, you need 27 nuclear reactors. We did a we did a, a little slide. I don't know if we brought it up on one of our shows, but it's called the cubic mile of oil. And if you do the cubic I've mile of oil, it. yeah, and, and it's it it's a little chart and basically what it's it's comparing that to, which is the amount of oil that the earth uses every uh, every year. And if you were to try to sustain that same amount of power. It was up to 90, what did I think it was? 45 million solar panels. It was so many nuclear plants. It was all of these different things that to, to, to gain that same amount of what we burn in a cubic mile of oil. And it's just not sustainable. It's not even feasible because you're three quarters of the stuff or, or not even that more of that product was created by fossil fuels. And I've always said this oxymoron. We're, cre we're creating stuff out of fossil fuels to get rid of fossil fuels. Okay, yeah, right. How does that work for you? It, it's, it's just not sustainable. Well, and, and I will be doing a, a whole series of stuff, not over like next year, but years. I mean, I, I'm planning on doing this for the next 19 years until I can retire. So I'm going to be digging into all this stuff, you know, and getting into the depth stuff. I'll give you an example. Just as I was getting ready to launch this thing, there was a ministerial announcement from Minister of Energy and Resources in, at the Weyburn unit about carbon capture and utilization. I couldn't make it because I was sick. I had a cold. And if you have a cold these days, that's like having a plague. So do not come in. But I followed up with an interview with the minister and an interview with the CEO of uh, Whitecap. And all the other media came and they said, oh, well, they had an announcement about carbon capture and they want to talk about putting uh, CO2 in the ground and using it for enhanced oil recovery. You know, and I mentioned oil minister maybe doing a little bit there and doing some here and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And that was a story. And he had seven paragraph stories or 
three of the different media just ran the press release. They didn't even write anything. Leader Post did a little bit more, give them some credit, but the rest, not so much. Well, if you take a look at what I did, you have to scroll right down on uh, the Pipeline Online site. The announcement they made was that if the federal government will simply play ball on one item on the carbon tax, which is to allow an investment tar carbon tax credit. So if we put CO2 in the ground and we have to tr pay $100 a ton for emitting it, if we get $100 a ton credit for putting in the ground, or even if we get $50 a ton credit for putting in the ground, we can make this work. And they're talking about a carbon trunk line, like, like what Alberta's doing, that would run from Bethune, K plus S potash, to the Regina, or sorry, the Moose Jaw Refinery, to the fertilizer plant at Belle Plaine, to the, uh, excuse me, the Regina Upgrader, which is, by the way, has an announcement on tomorrow on Thursday uh, about this, to the Weyburn unit, where they would then sequester it and use it for enhanced oil recovery. And also another carbon trunk line running from Shand and Boundary Dam 6 up to Weyburn and collecting all this. And the Weyburn unit can take up to an additional 7 million tons of carbon dioxide per year. Now, if you were concerned about that, that's a big deal. That's an enormous impact on Saskatchewan's emissions if only the federal government does this one little thing. Now, the other media, they didn't get that. They just didn't clue in on it. I wrote multiple stories. I did a call mod. I did a story of the minister, a story of the CEO of that. I followed up on that, of, pre, of uh, following things, because that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be talking about that stuff. And let's say, you know, I was talking to a guy here today who has a, a crane outfit locally. And I said, okay, look, if they built this, how much work did you get on Boundary Dam 3? It has a $1.4 billion project for one of them. This thing could end up being a half dozen projects if they all go ahead. Right. How much work could you get? How much work could all your people get, you know, for the next five, 10 years on this sort of thing? You know, that has the impact for the people on the ground. And they're also talking about doing a carbon trunk thing up in Lloydminster. I don't have much details on that, but Lloydminster, yeah. one of the first things I ever heard about in Lloydminster was them doing CO2 for Husky up near mm -hmm. uh, Vaughn, I think it was. Vaughn yeah, it is. Yeah. And I mean, when I, when I first started doing pipeline news in 2008, the salesperson who covered that area said, hey, Brian, you should go talk to a guy up at this bar, uh, restaurant. I think it was in Vaughn or Mervyn. You know, I, I heard him talking about CO2. So I phoned him up and he's like, oh my God. Click. You know, wow. <laughs> couldn't talk about it, right? You know, but, uh, you know, so these are the things that I am going to be covering like a blanket. And I cannot promise I'm going to be the fastest guy out there. You know, uh, I know someone who believed that if you're not first, you're last. Well, I believe in doing in-depth coverage that's going to get to the absolute meat and potatoes. When you're done reading my stuff, you know what's going on and how it's going to impact your business and how it's going to impact your town. And, and I'm not just going to be running press releases, you know, cut, paste, bang, done. Move on yeah. to next. You know? You've <clears throat> done a lot of, Brian, you've done a lot of comments here on a couple of questions that Kurt and I had about what is the pipeline news and what you're going to do? You, you, I like your comment about, I want to talk to the people that get dirt under your fingernails and you've given us a really good description of, and I agree in saying this respectfully on air right now that we're, we're, we're continually going from paper to digital. I get that. We're continually going from paper to online or internet or whatever. You seem like the kind of guy, I mean, you just, you could probably come on and we could do three guys on this show. You just thought you fit in so well with us, but what are you hearing about in the industry these days? And in you're part of the Saskatchewan. What, what are you hearing? Where's the industry headed? 
the short term and the long term because my heart is always going to be the long term. I don't care what happens. We were at a negative and we're at 80, almost busting $84 a barrel today. Um, I'm so optimistic. I know that these three guys that are on this call right now on this podcast are so optimistic. Um, we're we're going we're gonna to be here for a long time, long after our children's 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 children. And we're going to continue to find better ways to recover the oil that is not available to us right now that we can get out with our percentages of recovery but we're getting better and better at that that's not even counting any of that oil yet so you know where 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 are we in all of this where do you think we are short term and long term all right so i've been out of a loop a little bit for the last 18 months from the time i got laid off until recently that doesn't mean i haven't been keeping my ears to the ground but i haven't been out as much you know until i got my vaccine i really stayed home a lot because i'm you know possibly vulnerable to it heart attack and diabetes and all that other stuff. Okay. So, but I have been talking to some people and one of the things it's short term is there's going to be a labor shortage. And I mean, one of the things I'm going to be doing for my advertisers, for instance, is I'm going to, I'm telling them, look, I'll make two versions of an ad for you. One's going to be, Hey, yes, my company were great calls. The other one's going to be, we are hiring today so that if you get someone quit on Tuesday, you can send me a text and I can flip to that ad. It says we are hiring today. Call us now. And you know what? Everyone likes that idea because mm-hmm. they are all forecasting a labor shortage. And they're all saying so many people have left the patch to, I don't know how they're ever going to come back. Now I've heard that before. I've heard that in 2009, heard that 2008. The reality is there's one formula for that money. And you talk to people in Eastern Canada who have been sitting on their duff for the last five years, you know, since the downturn hit seven years ago, and there's not much prospect and they're coming off CRB and they have no income. Oh, guess what? Lloyd Minster VAC truck is hiring and they're paying 25 bucks an hour to start. Okay. Well, guess what? I guess I'm getting on a plane and I'm flying out to Lloyd Minster. You know, so that is going to be the, you know, the short term thing. That's, I mean, I made the bet of my life leaving the company I was with to do this on my own. So, I mean, I can't show any more confidence than doing that right now. I mean, I've basically just, yeah. all. Oh, if this doesn't fly, I'll be applying at Walmart and, you know, <laughs> disinfecting shopping carts. You know? I, I'm too old to go back to running an excavator. I mean, my, my health yeah. couldn't take it. So I have got to make this work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that my perspective is different than others is that I am an entrepreneur just like you, you know, and most of the people I'm interviewing are entrepreneurs and I am taking the risks and I'm up early in the morning now, which I'm not a morning person and I'm up late at night and I'm just, you know, running myself ragged because that's what you do as an entrepreneur. Yes. You know, that's just the way it is. So uh, longer term, you know, the, uh, the axiom I've heard many times over the years is that the cure for low oil is low oil. And what happens is, is that uh, companies stop investing in exploration and they stop doing additional drilling and they stop doing wildcatting and all that stuff and finding new sources. And then oil, Oil supply shortens up as demand grows. Sound familiar this year? <laughs> and all of a sudden, remember that formula, 2 million barrel shortage and price of oil gets $100 a barrel? Well, here's something that no one talks about. Out of a typical barrel of oil, about 4.5% is jet fuel. How many planes are flying these days? Maybe one-tenth of what we're flying before? So just do some back-of-a-table napkin math 
if 100 million barrels a day two years ago was producing four and a half million barrels a day of jet fuel, and we're only using a very small sliver of that, what happens when finally after, I don't know, fifth wave, seventh wave, whatever it is, people actually get their shots and planes start flying again. And all of a sudden there's a demand for that 4 million barrels of oil. Well, what's going to happen to the price of the oil if it's already $82 a barrel? You get to make money. I get to make money. Yeah. And in Lloydminster, Nissan sells more trucks. Woo! Yeah. First, we got to get them, but we'll, we'll get them. <laughs> but, I mean, and, and, and that's what happens. It's going to drive everything. Okay. You know, I think that we will see in the next, you know, two to four years, we will see a mini boom. It may not be what we saw in 2008, 2014, but it's going to be there. We're going to have people coming from Eastern Canada back here. There's going to be a lot of new fees on the streets, Lloydminster and in uh, Estevan and whatnot, because what's happening there? You know, their their government's banned fracking. Oh, we don't want to use natural gas. You know, Quebec is doing all that stuff. Well, their people need work. Yeah. I mean, we went through the biggest economic shock since 1929. There's a lot of people that are underemployed that need work, that need to make up for two years of lost revenue. You know, you know, maybe Serb got them by, but just barely. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's lives went on hold. So one of the things that I was thinking is that, you know, as soon as things open up, as they did this last summer, what's everyone going to do? They're going to jump in their car and they're going to go somewhere. You know, exactly. When this comes to an end and it will come to an end. And I I don't want to talk about COVID and my stuff. I mean, I'll talk about how how you as a company survived and, you know, how, what you did to get through this, but I don't want to do the daily COVID story. What the, all the other media do that? I want to talk about oil. I want to talk about energy. I want to talk about the stuff that's keeping our houses warm and the stuff that's putting food on the table and people, uh, you know, people are buying quads and buying trucks and buying cars and, you know, the primary industry. I mean, Saskatchewan's largest industry is agriculture. Everyone knows that. But do they know that the second largest industry is the oil industry, it is the energy industry by a large margin. Okay. Uh, one of the things I often I said in my columns is that until the downturn hit in 2000, end of 2014, do you know that 20% of the Saskatchewan budget was from oil? Now, uh, 42%, between 40 and 42% of our budget is expended on healthcare prior to COVID. I don't know what it is now. But prior to COVID, it was about 40%. So if 20% of the revenue was coming from oil, that meant that every doctor, nurse, uh, you know, uh, subsidized pill, old folks home, uh, ambulance south of Davidson was paid for by oil. Yes. That is huge. And people don't understand that. Yeah. You know, and the wind turbines aren't going to do that. That's uh, right. You know, one of the oil patch towns here is uh, Mooseman. They're kind of on the periphery of the patch, but they've always had some activity there. And I, you know, I talked to the owner of the paper there. He's actually doing pretty well. And they, uh, a few years ago, some wind turbines were built there. You know, and people are like, oh, look at the wind turbines. They've got a dozen wind turbines west of town. So I said, how many jobs did that create? None. You know, one guy comes out every so often, takes a look at it, goes home. No jobs. How many jobs get, are created by every uh, oil well? You know, and you're talking about future and technology and getting more out of it. That's right. Well, so Pikes Peak was doing SAG-D basically for about 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. But that no, was about very it. Well. There, there was no other 
real thermal stuff in that area. There was some huff and puff and there was a cyclic steam. As I said, I used to cover Lloydminster region. Right. Okay? And then about six years ago, uh, Amon Ghosh, who was a CEO of Husky, said, we are going into thermal in a big way. And as you know, they have. Now, what he didn't say, and I've talked about this many times in my previous job, is that we're not going to spend another cent on chops unless we have to. So, you know, and, and you know what chops is, cold, heavy oil production of sand, which has basically yep. been the standard way of producing oil in Lloydminster since 1982. Our staple food industry. Yes, it has. Yep. And, you know, there used to be a half dozen pump shops and whatnot. And everything around Lloydminster was about servicing chops. And I once did a calculation and, you know, maybe a little bit off on this, but not too much. To produce 10,000 barrels a day on chops, you needed about 400 people. Okay, between the number of field, the wells you had, number of field operators that are servicing them, the pump shops, a couple of service rigs, one drilling rig, punching wells all the time. You used to drill 300 wells in the Lloydminster area every year. And that's why all that iron is uh, parked on the east side of town there. And when you went to SAG-D, these quarter billion dollar projects, they're great projects, but they only employ all in, you count all the additional people that are servicing them and the people on, on staff, about 100 people. So that is a 75% reduction in manpower to produce the same amount of oil. So that more than anything has had the biggest impact from my perspective on the Lloydminster oil patch, more than the price of oil even, is that the shift to new technology, well, if Pikes Peak is new, but the shift to thermal has really had a tremendous impact. I mean, that's why, you know, a lot, last time I went through Lloyd, you know, there's a lot of shops that are empty now, right? But yeah. On the backside of that is that production that area is growing and someone's going to process this. And it's as opposed to going away, there may be fewer people doing it, but there may be more high tech stuff doing. I mean, maybe the tools that you're offering, you know, are more for thermal stuff, for instance. Well, Brian, what's happening there, and we're thankful for those companies like CNRL and Husky. The the thermal is definitely a way that they've been going on a lot of their projects but we're still tremendously thankful to Husky of the amount of massive amounts of coal production wells they still have in place and companies like CNRL. So even though there's that shift into some of that thermal production, they own so many assets in the cold production that, that that's going to take a long time before they're, in my opinion, going to get outside of that. And you're right. In the meantime, there's other opportunities for other companies to come in on the coal production. I'm still fascinated by coal production. I think it's still uh, a tremendously viable product in the area and will be for a long, 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 long time. So, But we're thankful for the, the companies that still have that other coal production out there as well. What I'm ho- hopeful for is I hope to see a wave of juniors come up and scoop up some of that uh, cold stuff and you know reinvigorate it and come back and you know, breathe some new life into it. Yeah. So right. I, I, I guess to, uh, uh, you know, if you see what I did there, I'm, I'm kind of showing my bona fides. I understand what you're talking about. Show me one other person in any of the Saskatchewan media that can have a conversation with you about chops. Yeah. You even say chops. That's lingo, man. That's like, <laughs> that's, that's Lloyd Minster lingo, man. And not yeah, a lot I, of I people would say that. Wormholes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, that's, I was, uh, was, uh, on the executive for the, uh, 
the CIM for several years. So uh, wormholes to progressive cavity pumps to whichever. And uh, um, I started in the up and down stuff and was part of the innovative side of the round and round, which is the progressive cavity pumps back in their actual early 80s. We ran some of the first progressive cavity pumps. Kurt, you wanted to say something. Well, I, you know, I heard Brian talk about people and, uh, you know, people with jobs and uh, what he's going to be covering with, uh, you know, pipeline online. But Brian, you are bringing on some some pretty big names too to help you out with pipeline online. They're going to be uh, writing some uh, some columns for you and things like that. So I've got two questions. One is uh, tell us who you're bringing on to help you out with this, and the next question would be who is the publication for? Are you reaching this publication out to people like Tracy K, who uh, knows already what Chops is? You're just going to, you know, tell them what's happening in the industry, or is your goal to reach people who sometimes don't understand that lingo and what's happening in the oil field, particularly those who believe that no oil is ethical oil? Well, principally, this is going to be a trade, uh, you know, publication or a trade website. So most of the people reading are going to be people like Tracy and people, you know, uh, like the Garrisons, for instance, who have a Garrison well servicing, you know, people who work in the industry, that's going to be the bulk of it. But, you know, hopefully some of those people share some of these stories on their social media and maybe other people who don't work in it go, oh, that's what it is, you know, or say to their brother-in-law, hey, check this out. This explains what I do. See, this is what I've been trying to tell you at Christmas time every year. So, I mean, if some of that even if five or 10% of that ended up being people from the outside learning about it. Like I said, you know, previously with pipeline news, it was really my exploration of, you know, what is this? You know, I often would tell people, treat me like I'm a seven-year-old. You know, I don't know what fracking is. What does it mean? Well, now I do know what fracking is, you know, and I can explain that stuff. And one of my strengths is being able to explain these things in terms that Joe public can understand. Right. Talking about the contributors, this is not just Brian's voice, okay? It'll be a lot of me. And my, my kids would say there is a lot of me. I'm pretty wide these days. But the <laughs> re- I, I want this to be about other voices that really, you know, have Saskatchewan. So in addition to my own stuff, I've got uh, Dave Yeager, who is the best writer in the Canadian oil patch, bar none. So he writes for, you know, for the Canadian. Anderson we had him group. on the show too, Brian. He, I, I first met him when he was working with MNP as their uh, leader, their oil field uh, leadership guy. And he was phenomenal. And whenever I needed something to you know, find a good story, I'd just phone him up and say, hey, Dave, tell me about this. And to have him writing is just spectacular. You know, and uh, oh, and by the way, his, his columns are long. Why are they long? Because it takes time to explain these things. So he's one. Excuse me. Another one is Steve Halbera. Now, Steve Halbera is phenomenal. It, uh, he's one of the top geologists in this province. I mean, a very short version of his resume. He was uh, once the president of the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Saskatchewan, or APEGS. So he was basically the top dog for all the Vega, geologists. Yep. Uh, he, there are two potash mines built in this province as a result, partially of his geological work. One of his, which is K plus S. The other one is a place you might have heard of called Jansen Lake, which is going to be the biggest potash mine in the world. And he helped identify that. Okay. In your neck of the woods, he was the geologist responsible for Rallymont, 
and Rallymont ended up being Serafina. Okay, Serafina's developing that stuff. So he worked on working that up. He's also the vice president of exploration for Royal Helium. And he's launching his own potash company called Buffalo Potash, which is going to be a, a solution mine potash thing for selective solution mining. Could you got somebody a little more qualified for your uh, for your for your writing than uh, Brian? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, so, so, for instance, this this week I'm doing a number of stories on uh, there was there was a surprise in the August land sales, some stuff about oil shale leases up near Hudson Bay in Arborfield. What the hell is an oil shale lease, and why is it up there? So I did a story on that, and then I I uh, sent some questions to the ministry. And Steve's going to have a column here, expecting in my inbox any minute now, today or tomorrow, and that he's going to explain from his perspective what oil shale is. Well, when you have one of the top geologists in Saskatchewan talking about these things, how much better can you get? Okay, so that's so that's Steve, and I got Brian Crossman. He's a friend of mine. He's a, one of the partners and owners at Independent Well Servicing. He is the closest guy I've got to the iron. Like I was out at uh, Pergolithium yesterday, and Brian was out there that morning. Uh, delivering some mats for his rig. Like he is out there in the field all the time. And he is, uh, he's phenomenal. He's very down to earth with his writing. Uh, he's been uh, doing a column for the hitch for this, what used to be called the CAODC, you know, the CAOEC. Yes. And uh, he's great. Uh, I'm also posting everything to Quick Dick McDick posts. Okay. So Quick Dick McDick worked in the oil patch for 19 years before coming back to the farm. Did you know that? I did no, actually. I, did not. I, I knew that. Yeah. You, yeah. Kurt might have known. I didn't. Yeah. So, I mean, he has a lot to say when it comes to energy because he's been on the ground. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> uh, who else I got here? Uh, uh, some new ones you're going to see is Douglas Thompson, who's also a friend of mine, who uh, was a well site supervisor on drilling. Uh, when the downturn hit in 2015, it was, he went to work uh, in the foothills on January 2nd. And on January 5th, they said, Rack your rig, spring breakup starts now. So he went to work in Saudi Arabia and he's been working overseas for the last seven years. Uh, but he's worked in the North Sea. He's worked in Foothills, Saskatchewan, worked all over the place. So he's, you know, kind of my drilling guy uh, for columnists. And another guy from uh, Kindersley you may have heard of named uh, Shane Nigam. So he's a geologist who uh, recently signed on with Royal Helium. And uh, you're talking about uh, mud bogs and stuff like that. He runs a mud bog thing in Kindersley every year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I so probably that, I I worked with Shane on some mud bog shows before that he's coming rallied on. I'm pretty sure that's the home of we had Gary Becker from uh, Longhorn Oil and Gas on as one of our guests as well from Kindersley. So I mean, and then I've got a few others I'm working on here. I just talked uh, the other day to one of the top oil field accountants in Saskatchewan. He may be contributing soon. Uh, I've got I talked to a guy Lloyd Mincery. I first saw my website uh, a couple of weeks ago. I've just launched, and he's contact me said hey i'd love to write with you so just trying to nail that down hopefully you'll see that soon so we'll have some direct Lloydminster content so oh and i forgot this other guy you might have heard of his name is brad yeah Wall. here we go hey so i mean brad said he'll write when he feels like it you know i'm hoping for four times a year i mean but these, no, these retired brad, guys eh? Brad. these retired guys yeah, but yeah. Brad, Brad, who now are you talking about? <laughs> what? what, Brad, what? Brad. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, just, just the most popular the premier He's not some history. off the wall yeah. guy, is he? He's not off the wall, is he? Well, well, no, a, but he, he is a former radio guy. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, Brad I think it's called, I think his nickname was the Wall of Sound or something like that. Oh, Brad Wall. 
Yeah. So uh, anyhow, so uh, he's, great. he's on the board for White Cap Resources. Uh, he obviously has seen all the government side inside and out, so he understands all this. And I mean, uh, for all these people, they don't necessarily have to write about you know, service rigs or drilling. They can write about whatever they want. I've just told them, don't get me sued and don't get you sued. Okay. But I mean, these are people that have a wealth of knowledge, you know, orders of magnitude above what I have. And, you know, to bring them all together and they're, they're, they're excited. They want to write about this stuff. You know, they want to talk about, you know, yes, our industry is going to survive. Yes, our industry is going to thrive. I mean, Steve in particular, you know, wants to talk about all the other things we can do with a drill bit that aren't necessarily oil. You know, he is going to be launching a potash company that's going to be using drilling rigs. You know, and he's drilling for helium right now. Well, that's a huge development. I mean, and, and I'm going to have a series of stories coming up soon about uh, lithium development. And I mean, if that comes to pass, if they are successful with what they're doing, it could be absolutely revolutionary. I mean, I was talking to a guy on the site yesterday who I've known for, I, I think I first interviewed him in 2011. Uh, and I told him, I said, you know, this is kind of like seeing Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak inserting the, uh, the microchips into the first Apple. Yeah. Like this could be a multi-billion dollar thing. Now, any startup is always a risk. Okay. But if it does turn out and if they are successful, it could be revolutionary, you know, throughout large areas of the province. I don't know where particularly, but it, it can be. And mm-hmm. it could add an extra revenue stream that all of a sudden, well, we're not just producing oil and a little bit of gas. We're producing lithium for those Ford trucks, batteries. And not just a little bit, but I mean a fair bit. I did a story in 2000. And let me talk a little bit about the lithium stuff. This, this is important. This is new stuff. And some of these things are, uh, they're, they're laying the groundwork a long time in advance. One, one of the other things is I'm going to have a regular series of stories every month or so. I'm going to be having a story from one of a geologist I'll interview at the core lab, the Saskatchewan Subsurface Geological Laboratory. I've been writing stories about those rock stars for ever since I started this, started with Pipeline News. And I've always been on a regular basis and I'm their biggest fan. Now, a lot of people don't realize how important the work the government does with those crew of geologists and the, the core lab in Regina. So a number of years ago, I ran, <clears throat> I was at a Wilson Basin conference and I was talking to a guy named Gavin Jensen, who happens to be one of the senior geologists there. And he was talking, this was 2012, 2013. He was talking about lithium within brines that come up with the produced water and oil wells. And he said, you know, maybe something could come of this. And uh, if, if someone does something about this lithium stuff, you know, at this right now, lithium is 7,000 or probably $6,000 a ton. And by 2020, it could triple. Well, it's 2021 and lithium apparently is $21,000 a ton. Wow. And I was present at the drilling of the very first targeted with lithium well in Saskatchewan near Torquay. So that was eight years ago. We had that conversation. And then a guy from Weyburn uh, who grew up in the patch, who went to get his geology degree. And, you know, when he graduated, oil was $26 a barrel. He started developing this lithium company and now they're drilling for lithium. Plus they're looking at the ability to use, do it from produce water. Well, if that's successful, I mean, there's so many elements of it. I mean, you could yeah. end up, your pumps could end up being used instead of producing oil. You could be producing lithium wells. Yeah. You know, 
Uh, it could be, you know, just I, it's if I sound hyperbolic, it could be absolute game changing and additional revenue stream. I mean, you know, for forever, we produce oil and we, we, if we have enough gas, we can get some revenue from the gas if we have enough. Well, what if if we have enough lithium, we can also get revenue from the lithium. And whether you want a uh, battery powered truck or not, the reality is every phone needs lithium battery. That's Everything right. that's going electric needs lithium. Every lithium cordless needs. or cordless drills, all of them are going to need it. And the reality is it's, it's physics and chemistry. Lithium is the lightest metal. You will never find an element that is better suited for batteries than lithium because every other metal is heavier. You want a lead battery? Well, then you need more power to move it because it's heavier. So if we can produce that in Saskatchewan, how phenomenal is that? And by the way, they did their initial tests at Kinderzum. So it sounds like a no-brainer, but we've seen stuff that's no-brainers before, uh, you, yeah. know, you know, get stopped because of uh, particularly uh, this government uh, right now, this government that isn't uh, actually sitting right now and won't be sitting for another, what, month and a let's, half? Let's be clear. You're talking federal government. I'm talking federal government. That's right. Because yes. The Saskatchewan government has been incredibly yes. supportive of the patch. But it's the federal government you're waiting on. And that that's oh. that's the that's the ticket, right? And I I mean I, you know any all bets are off the table when it comes to what they will say <laughs> when it yeah. comes to lithium. Brian, we can't thank you enough. Wow! Uh, best of luck with PipelineOnline.ca. Uh, you're going to do a phenomenal job. You've already enlisted the help of some incredible people. Uh, we want you to know that it, you know next time you're in Lloydminster, we want to take you out for lunch. Uh, we know Absolutely. you're going to come up here two, uh, three, uh, you know every couple of months. That you'll be up here and uh, you know this is the heavy oil center of the universe and so you're welcome in lloyd minster at any time anytime yeah absolutely you, you can let your listeners know here if we can just put a little plug absolutely. i'm looking for people to interview there so if anyone seeing this podcast wants me to pay you a visit you know two months from now or six months from now or whatever uh my phone number is 306-461-5599 my email is brian.zinchuk at, at pipelineonline.ca. You can find it on the website, and I am looking to talk to you. I want to talk to everyone eventually. I'm doing this for the next you know, two decades, so I want to get to everyone. You're going to be on Pipeline Online. You just don't know it yet. Yeah, love it. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it, Brian. And for Tracy and I, we're going to be back again in November. And uh, who knows, Brian, uh, you know, Brian mentioned a lot of good names there. Maybe Absolutely. one of those guys might be up next on patchwork so once again brian can't thank you enough thank you so much for shedding light on a lot of things particularly the pipeline we didn't know about and about uh, lithium now we got something to watch now we got something to be that's excited. right yeah thanks so much brian thank you we will be in touch